Good afternoon. Good afternoon and welcome to Science Sundays. I'm your host, John Beacom. Today, we have a great um, event, and I see it's been very popular, filled up the room already, people still streaming in. Science matters, and it matters not only for the researchers who do it, but it also matters for we, the members of the public, who want to find out what's going on at these research frontiers. And that's why Science Sundays is one of the premier outreach events of the College of Arts and Sciences. We share the science of our researchers and those from around the world with you every once a month on Sundays and then also on the web. If you haven't found, uh, if you've missed one of the talks, you can find them all on YouTube. And if you'd like to make sure that you're notified of all the future talks, please sign up for the Science Sundays email list. You get one email a month, maybe two, and uh, I think everybody can handle that. And you'll also find out about a few other upcoming related events. So today our speaker is uh, Professor Robert Hazen of the Carnegie Institution in Washington, D.C. He is uh, both a distinguished researcher with over 400 scientific publications and a long list of awards. He's also a distinguished educator and expositor of science with over uh, 25 books, many of them intended for the public. He's renowned for both his scientific research and his sharing it with the public, which is a perfect fit for Science Sundays. So let's welcome Dr. Robert Hazen. Thank you, John. It's such a pleasure to be here. We live on a planet of breathtaking beauty. From the proximity of our solitary moon, we see that blue marble. We see the swirling white clouds. And we know we live on a planet of change. And so it's logical to ask, has Earth always looked like this? Has it changed? And if it has changed, how? By what process? What were the stages of change? What is the story of Earth? Today I want to explore that question. I want to do it from the perspective, my unique perspective as a mineralogist. And that may seem strange. We're looking at an entire planet, and I'm talking about minerals, crystals. And yet I will argue today that those crystals, those minerals, are the best preservers of our past. They're robust. They last for billions of years. They carry hints about what's happened in the past. So today what I want to do is look at this idea that Earth has transformed repeatedly over billions of years, that life and rocks have co-evolved. It's part of the same story. And I also want to emphasize the theme that data-driven discovery is going to be a key to understanding that great history, the four and a half billion years. Much of what I'm going to tell you about has been funded by the Sloan Foundation, the Keck Foundation, the Templeton Foundation, and I invite you to go to our website, dtdi.carnegiescience.edu, to see many of the images and some of the stories that I'm going to be describing to you today in more detail. I'm also thrilled that I'm now part of a growing international network, something like 67 different institutions in 20 countries, hundreds of researchers. This is the network of our growing deep time data infrastructure initiative where we're trying to understand Earth history 
through deep time, through four and a half billion years, by looking at a variety of data sources. So that's what we're going to be focusing on today. I want to do three things. I want to look at a field called mineral evolution. It's been around for about 10 years, and it looks at the diversity and the distribution of minerals on Earth through four and a half billion years. I also want to look at mineral ecology, which looks at the diversity and distribution of minerals on Earth today, which allows us to predict some of those minerals where we might find new deposits and so forth. And finally, a really fascinating field, sort of the social lives of minerals, mineral network analysis, where we try to understand the interrelationships of many, many different kinds of minerals as they exist together. And this idea of network analysis allows us to do that. So we have several overarching scientific goals here. We really want to document the history of Earth. We want to use minerals in order to do that. We also want to compare the evolution of different planets and moons. And we're extremely interested in the coevolution of life and minerals. Now, all of these discoveries, right from the beginning, they, they rely on deep time data resources. So I want to pay homage to some of my colleagues who have been spending decades, often unheralded, in trying to build data resources that we use. One of the most important for mineralogy is called the Rough Database, rough.info slash IMA. And the Rough Database has lists of all the different known mineral species, about 4,500 of those. You can search by chemistry, you can search by structure type. And what we've been adding is something called a mineral evolution database, where we have information on a mineral sp species, a locality, and an age. And we now have 185,000 different localities. Now, I'm going to be using this name mineral species quite a bit during this talk. This idea of mineral species, it's not a very familiar idea. You were talking about biological species, but in mineralogy, it means that it's naturally occurring. It has an N-member idealized composition like SiO2. It has an idealized crystal structure. It has an idealized N-member composition. And it has to be naturally occurring. And so if you have a crystal that you find just walking out in the woods, and it's got a unique combination of crystal structure and composition. That is a new mineral species. There are about 5,400 known species. And I'll be talking about species throughout tonight's talk. OK, so we now have also the mindat.org database. This is run in large part by mineral collectors around the world. And they have over a million mineral locality pairs. So if you want to know where a particular mineral occurs, this is where you go. We also use EarthChem. That's a huge amount of geochemical data, the analyses of rocks and other geological materials, uh, millions and millions of analyses from around the world. Kirsten Leonard at Columbia works on that. We have MacroStrat, which is the different sedimentary columns of rocks. That's another huge database. Also, the PaleoBioDB, all the fossil data that's out there. So these are databases that are tremendously valuable open access available to everyone. We even use the protein data bank, which has protein structures through deep time. And you can look at protein structures and see how they've evolved. So all of these, that's the raw material that we use. So let's begin. Let's look at mineral evolution. Mineral evolution, as I said, it's the study of the diversity and the distribution of minerals through deep time. How, do, how has mineralogy changed on Earth's surface? So the idea here is that we study the difference in the diversity, how many different kinds of minerals, but also the distributions, the abundances of minerals, 
the compositional ranges, and that includes trace and minor elements, not just the idealized end members. And we also look at the grain sizes and shapes. As a mineral collector when I was young, I loved the crystals and the different forms and the different colors, something that professional mineralogists have kind of abandoned when they talk about minerals, but we're coming back to it because that's information. And if we want to understand the past, we need information. So we look only at the shallow depths because these are places where we're most likely to study minerals on Earth. It's what we're going to be able to see on other planets and moons. And also, very importantly, it's where there's an interaction with biology. And you'll see that biology plays a huge role in the evolution of minerals. So the basic bottom line is that you get new mineral species when you have new combinations of physical, chemical, and biological processes. I have to defend the use of the word evolution. I'm sure there's some people in here that are trained in biology, and sometimes biologists are very offended. You can't use the word evolution. That's our word. It's not your word. And I disagree. I disagree. It's, th this idea of evolution has changed over time, has been used in many, many different fields. We talk about the evolution of planets, the evolution of meteorites, the evolution of stars, the evolution of galaxies, evolution of the igneous rocks. So you can certainly talk about change over time, but it means something more than that. There's an implication in evolution that things get more complex, more patterned, more diverse, and that's certainly true for minerals. There's also an idea of congruency, the idea that each step follows logically from the step that came before. So there's a sequence. It's not just a random thing, but it's not this. <laughs> and, and please just erase this from your mind. It's not Darwinian. <laughs> evolution. Mineralogy has its own set of selection rules, but it's not the same. Okay, so to show you how this was different, this idea was introduced in 2008, mineral evolution. And this is a question that we asked at that time, and we looked in vain through hundreds of years of mineralogical literature. What was the very first crystal in the cosmos? When and where did the first crystal form after the Big Bang? And it seems like such an obvious question. Everybody asks about the origin. If you're talking about a field, you talk about what's the first, what's the earliest, what's the, and, and yet we couldn't find this answer. And so, so think about it. What was the first crystal in the cosmos? And you think about the Big Bang, 13.8 billion years ago, incredibly hot, incredibly dense. There aren't even any atoms yet, so it couldn't have been right at the beginning. And then things expand, they expand and cool, they expand and cool, and then you have the first atoms that took a while before you got the first atoms, and then it was mostly hydrogen and helium, which are gases, and they don't form crystals. So it's not then, so what happens next? Well, you maybe have to wait 100 million years to you form the first stars. But stars are much too hot. I mean, they're hydrogen and helium, but stars start to make other elements, and they make the heavier elements, things carbon and oxygen and silicon and nitrogen, the things that form minerals. And so what we suspect is that the very first minerals occurred when those stars exploded. So supernovas. Imagine what happens. The envelope is now element rich, and it expands, and it cools. And so you can get condensation. And we think the very first mineral was diamond. And the reason is, is because carbon is an incredibly abundant element in those early stars. And it condenses at the highest temperature, 4,400 Kelvin. Now, if you cool down a little bit from there to 4,000 Kelvin, still pretty hot, you can make the stabler form graphite. And so we think these are the first two. And indeed, there are about a dozen in all minerals that we think came in this earliest period, formed basically from stars. 
minerals formed around stars. These are called the Ur minerals. They're all very, very high temperature minerals. They all form from common elements. And if you look at them, here are the 10 elements that are most abundant in those early minerals. And so maybe the question for mineral evolution could be posed in a different way. How do you go from 12 different mineral species with 10 essential elements to what we have today, over 5,400 mineral species with 72 essential elements? That's the story of mineral evolution. And we tell it in a series of 10 different stages of mineral evolution. So here's the story. You start with a nebula, a nebula of dust and gas. This is a vast expanse of space. If you looked at our entire solar system, it would be much smaller than that red dot. So, so there's thousands of star systems that can form in a place like this. And, and we were one of them once upon a time, four and a half billion years ago. And that early period of dust and gas most of it, of course, 98% or more went into the central sun, and that's getting larger and larger in the temperature and the pressure is increasing as the sun forms by gravity. But the surrounding dust, it's very hard to attract these dust grains by gravity. They're too small, but they do stick together by electrostatic forces. In fact, you have nebular dust bunnies. It's just, I mean, just like underneath your bed where you haven't... Uh, swept recently. And what happens then is the sun begins to ignite and flashes of heat spread out. And also nebular lightning can do this. You take those dust bunnies, you heat them up, and they melt and they come down to little tiny droplets called chondrules. So the first stage of mineral evolution then is these most primitive meteorites, which contain the tiny droplets that have been melted and fused together, and the chondrites come together and you form things that are the size of you know, a, a basketball, and then the size of this room, and then the size of the campus, and then the size of the state of Ohio. As you get larger and larger, you start getting other processes, though. So there's about 60 minerals in these most primitive chondrites, but when they come together and start forming planetesimals, they're new processes, processes of heating, processes of aqueous alteration impacts as large objects hit each other with very, very high velocities. And so you now can make up around 250 mineral species. That's stage two. All the different meteorites that fall to Earth today contain about this number of minerals. And then stage three, that's when you have a planet like Earth, and in fact, all the planets in our solar system, Mars and Venus and Mercury, they all get coated by this layer, this outer layer of a black, dense rock called basalt. Now, if that basalt is wet, you can have all sorts of minerals, new kinds of ices, new kinds of clay minerals, and so forth. If it's dry, like mercury in the moon, we think we're maybe limited to about 300 mineral species, and we think that's the end point of these worlds. If you have something like Earth, you can get up to 420 mineral species pretty easily with these wet minerals, hydroxides and ices, clays, and so forth, and we think that may be the end point of Mars. We're exploring Mars right now with the Curiosity rover. We're looking at the mineralogy. And everything we've found so far fits very well into this model of a stage three planet that hasn't gone very far. Now, Earth has other tricks in mind. When you take a large planet like Earth that's covered in basalt, and if that basalt is wet, and if it starts to melt from the heat coming from below, you generate an entirely new kind of rock called granite. And the thing about granite is it concentrates all sorts of rare elements. So you start making new minerals, minerals of things like boron and beryllium, lithium. There's tantalum and even cesium, concentrations of extremely rare elements 
in these things called pegmatites, and that gets you up to about 1,000 mineral species. So here we've gone from the 12 ur minerals to 60 to 250 to maybe 400. Now we're at 1,000, and Earth has even one more trick up its sleeve. That's called plate tectonics, where as you take slabs of Earth's crust and upper mantle and subduct them down into the hot interior, they begin to melt, and huge volumes of Earth's crust and upper mantle are affected. Fluid rock interactions generate all sorts of new concentrations of elements. They lead to new kinds of metal deposits, hundreds of new sulfide and sulfa salt minerals. You get new high-pressure suites of minerals that are brought to the surface by plate tectonic activities as mountain building occurs. And so these kinds of processes, we think, can get you up to 1,500 mineral species. And we've now gone through five of our 10 stages. But think about this. We've made about 1,500 mineral species through purely physical and chemical processes. But we have more than 5,400 minerals known on Earth today. How can you possibly do it? And the amazing answer, the surprising answer, is the reason is life. What Earth does in terms of making new minerals is primarily a biological phenomenon. That's an astonishing statement, and it's true. Now, one of the things that amuses me about this is that there are many, many scenarios for the origin of life, and virtually all of them require, in one way or another, minerals. Maybe sulfide minerals or clay minerals or borates or something else. And minerals play all sorts of key roles. They help to protect molecules as molecules go on a mineral surface and, and get sort of protected from the elements around it. They can bond to the surface. You get catalysts of new kinds of molecules. For example, the production of ammonia, essential for life. It happens on mineral surfaces through catalytic reactions. You have different selection and absorption of molecules, concentrating molecules on surfaces. So minerals play all these roles that are critical to the origin of life. But by the same token, it turns out that further mineral evolution depends on life. So this is what we mean by the coevolution of the geosphere and the biosphere of life and rocks. Stage six. This is when life has gotten established. The earliest, most primitive microbes actually eat rocks. They take the chemical potential energy of a rock in its surface, and they use that energy as their met metabolic source. So we have all sorts of rocks that are being precipitated in new ways, but we don't have a lot of new mineral species. We don't think there are a lot of new minerals the result of this. By the way, these are the culprits. They're called archaea. Technical name chemolithoautotrophs. They're, they're, they're microbes that eat rocks. And there are lots and lots of them on Earth today, and they do all sorts of fascinating chemistry. But what really was the game changer was photosynthesis and the production of oxygen. <coughs> Excuse me. 2.5 billion years ago, Earth turned red. Turned red because of these photosynthetic microbes. Oxygen in the atmosphere rose gradually, and as it did so, we, the surface rusted, essentially. And many, many different kinds of minerals arise from this. You can find the largest iron deposits on Earth from this age because the oceans, which were previously rich in iron, started getting oxygenated. The rust came out of solution, fell to the ocean floor, and made these huge deposits of iron oxides. And our hypothesis is about two-thirds of all the mineral diversity on Earth is the consequence of this oxygenation. What it means is that most of the beautiful minerals that you see in museums would not occur were it not for life. The copper minerals, the blue and green minerals, I would say two-thirds of those simply wouldn't form. 
roughly 90% of the uranium minerals wouldn't have formed. And same thing is true for manganese and for nickel and iron and cobalt and molybdenum and arsenic, and you go on and on down the list. Any of those minerals that are sensitive to how much oxygen there is in the atmosphere, suddenly you have an explosion of new species after that great oxygenation event. And so this is one of our central hypotheses that this represents the single most important diversification mechanism. It occurred about two and a half billion years ago, and that's this punctuation event in the evolution of minerals. Stage eight is a period of about a billion years after that, in which the oceans gradually got more oxygenated from the surface exposed to the air, deeper and deeper and deeper until today when the oceans are completely oxygenated from top to bottom in most places. Don't think there were a lot of new species. We estimate roughly 4,600. There then was a period about 800 to 600 million years ago when Earth went through a convulsion of, of climate changes from extreme icebox conditions where it may have been covered with ice from poles to the equator, alternating with hothouse events where you had extreme warming up and down and up and down. And during periods when ice was the dominant phase on the surface, that's the dominant mineral. Ice is H2O in a particular crystal structure, so this is one of our 5,400 mineral species. And then finally, the stage 10, this is the green earth stage when life moved to land, when life learned how to make its own shells and hard parts out of minerals. So one of the things that happened about 400 million years ago was the formation of roots, radically changing the mineralogy of the land. Root systems that we now see on Earth, they're vast and they create huge quantities of clay minerals, for example, breaking rocks down much more efficiently than ever before. We also have all sorts of biologically precipitated shells and teeth and bones and other minerals that have transformed the surface of our globe. That's stage 10. And that's the story of Earth. And it's a nice story. It's a story that feels good. We see progression. We see things going from a very early primitive stage to us. And yet for me, even 10 years ago when we introduced it, it was strangely unsatisfying. Because it's a, like a just-so story. It's, it's very qualitative. There's no meat on these bones. And we can talk about these. And, and furthermore, we know that parts of it are just simply wrong. I mean, wrong in the sense that it's not stage one and stage two and stage three. Stage three, making basalt, that's going on today. Stage four, making granite, that's going on today. Stage five, plate tectonics, well, that's still happening. So this isn't like one after another. It's like they're all kind of, there's still microbes of all sorts making minerals. I mean, it's, it gets much more confused. The chronology is not just a simple linear thing here. And so, so how can we be more quantitative? And that's where data comes in. That's where data-driven discovery comes in so important. So what I would like to do is talk now about a quantitative data-driven approach to understanding the diversity and distribution of minerals, and by extension, the evolution of our planet. So we're going to be looking at these data resources. And first, I want to look at mineral evolution. Now, the raw data for mineral evolution is a mineral at a locality with an age. And we've been building these data resources. As I mentioned, we have 185,000 data points now for what are called the transition metals, the things that are like iron and nickel and copper and cobalt, which are very abundant, play a role in biology and so forth. We have about 60,000 data. And what we see when we look at a plot that goes back 4 billion years, this is modern times, 
going back by billions of years. This is the number in each 50 million year bin, how many mineral locality data do we have in that bin? And what you see here are a couple of things. You see peaks. It's not just smooth and continuous. And you also see a change in the colors. And those colors represent how oxidized the surface was. And we're going to see it change. These are the two first order things we see. So the first change has to do with, we think, the supercontinent cycle. Earth's continents have shifted dramatically over 4 billion years. Sometimes they come together and form mountain ranges. Sometimes they break apart, as they're doing today in most parts of the world. And these plate tectonic motions, whenever you have a mountain building event, whenever the plates come together to form what's called a supercontinent, then you tend to have more mineralization occurring, both because mountains form minerals and they also preserve minerals. And so when you look at that graph I just showed you, here are these five stages where you have supercontinent cycles where all the continents have come together. And in each billion year interval, the highest peak is always underneath one of these episodes. So the supercontinent cycle clearly is reflected in the mineral evolution of our planet. Now, the other thing that happens has to do with the oxidation. And one of the biggest sensors of oxygen is manganese minerals. Manganese minerals can occur in a reduced form, a less oxidized form, in this two plus state, but in a more oxidized or kind of a manganese rust, if you will, with four plus manganese. And Dan Hummer, my colleague at um, Southern Illinois University, has plotted all the manganese minerals back through four billion years, how many you see, but also the colors indicate the manganese oxidation state. And the most oxidized, this purple band here, you see is much, much stronger towards recent times. So if we do this with lots of different minerals, we see an increase in oxidation state. So this allows us then to look at minerals in a new way through deep time. We can do various kinds of nice imaging. You can compare all of these different metals, iron, nickel, cobalt, and so forth. You can see how they are similar, how they're different in some ways. There's a vast amount of data represented in a figure like this. Indeed, we can do this for the entire periodic table. Every one of these little boxes is a different chemical element with a high resolution map of the minerals just containing that particular element. So <clears throat> a huge amount of data here that we're exploring now and we continue to build. So that's the mineral evolution story. I think what you can see is that, that the qualitative tale that I told you at the beginning is now being bolstered but also modified and we're seeing much more quantitative detail by using data. A second way of thinking about minerals is thinking about what's on Earth today. What are the diversity and distribution of minerals on our planet today? And that's mineral ecology. So what we once again do is we employ these huge databases that list minerals and their localities across the globe. To give away the punchline, what we've discovered is the distribution of minerals on Earth is very much like the distribution of words in a book, something called lexical statistics. And what we find in a book is that the, most of the words you see are kind of common, a, and, and the. But there are many, many more rare words that are used only once or twice, scattered throughout the volume. And it's those rare words that tells you the authorship, that can tell you the genre of book. So you have an unsigned manuscript. You can analyze it looking at these rare words. So how are minerals distributed? A few common minerals dominate. 
but in fact, it's the rare minerals that tell us much, much more about Earth's diversity. And those rare minerals follow what's called a large number of rare event frequency distribution. Let me show you what that means. On the horizontal scale here, minerals that are known from only one locality, one locality only on all of Earth. And there's over a thousand minerals that are known from one locality. For exactly two localities, there are about 600. Three, four, five, the number decreases. In black is the observed data. In red is the model that we have, this large number of rare event model. And you can go and you can basically plot all different kinds of minerals in this way. The neat thing about a model like this is it allows you to make an accumulation curve. Accumulation curves have been used in biology for a long, long time. Imagine going into a woods that you've never seen before, and you want to know how many different species are in that woods. Well, you go to the first tree and you write it down in your notebook. That's new for your list. And the second bush and the second tree and the second plant, the third, fourth, fifth, they may be new too. But eventually you're going to come to one you've seen before. But then you're going to keep building your list. Gradually, as you look at more and more plants, you have fewer and fewer new things to add to your list. And that's an accumulation curve. So you don't have to look at every single plant in a forest to extrapolate out to tell you roughly how much diversity there is. We do the same thing with minerals. By the way, you can do this with genomes as well, DNA counts. So here's the mineral version of this. This is the number of mineral locality pairs data. So quartz from Columbus, Ohio. That's one point, and we've got you know, over a million today of this. And then the vertical scales, how many different species do we see? And when you start out, you're finding new species rapidly. But the more you look, the fewer new species there are, and the more you're just seeing things you've already found before someplace else on Earth. Now, when we first did this back in 2014, that was the data point. You can extrapolate it out, and it turns out when you extrapolate it, there are thousands of missing minerals. Something over 4,000 missing minerals. And using tricks, we can actually predict which one of those minerals there are. For example, you can say how many of these minerals contain the element sodium. And when we do that, well, here's, here's carbon, the frequency spectrum from carbon. What you find here? is that's the data as of 2016 when you did this analysis, but you can extrapolate into the future, and there are 145 missing carbon minerals. And then we can say how many of those carbon minerals have sodium. We can look up the known sodium carbonate minerals. We can then look in other reference books and say, well, there are these other two sodium carbonates that are extremely well known as synthetic phases. They should occur in nature too, but nobody's ever described them. So we predict that they're missing. We go out and we look for them. Here's Lake Natron and Odonio Lengai. These are both carbonate-rich uh, volcanic zones in um, Tanzania. And you can actually go and look. And the reason those minerals hadn't been found is because they are all sort of white, crumbly powders. They all look pretty much alike. They're not big, beautiful crystals that you'd pick up. And, and so you just have to find the right speck of powder and analyze it. And I predict we're going to find that very soon. And so we wrote this up. We have this prediction of the missing minerals of carbon. And we started a carbon mineral challenge a few years ago just for fun. This is part of something called the Deep Carbon Observatory. We're trying to understand all the different properties and phases of carbon on Earth. And we predicted, you know, there's more than 100 missing carbon minerals. We should go out and find them. We started an international search. The first one that was found in this search is actually one that we predicted in our paper. 
There's another one that we predicted. We didn't predict every new mineral, though. One of them, tenunculite, was not on our list. It's an organic mineral. It's one that um, we did predict it to be eight new organic minerals, but we didn't predict this one. And you may understand why when I read you the description. A little hard to read there. Um, tenunculite only exists when the excrement of a falcon bakes in the hot gases of a coal fire. Uh, okay, so I admit we didn't predict that, but that's one of the wonderful things about mineralogy. It turns out about 50% of all the minerals discovered are completely new crystal structures to science. They've never been synthesized in any form anywhere. So minerals are a wonderful entry point to new materials. That's tenunculite. Okay, so in mineral ecology, we can actually predict for the very first time the missing minerals. And you know, it's interesting, common minerals, uh, the things that make up the normal rocks, they define an Earth-like planet. And every Earth-like planet, we think, are going to have the same common minerals. But it's the rare minerals that describe the uniqueness of Earth. And we can actually show statistically that the combination of minerals we have on Earth probably is unmatched on any other planet anywhere in the cosmos, the really rare ones in that combination. And this is another really fascinating idea that we're trying to explore, this idea that the LNRE distribution, we don't see it on Mars, we don't see it on the moon. It appears this may be a biosignature. So that's kind of cool, something if we go to another planet and find that LNRE distribution of minerals, maybe that's giving us a hint. Okay, and finally, mineral network analysis. This, you know, we're trying to understand minerals and their distribution and their diversity, how they coexist, what kind of patterns they form in nature. And one way you can do this is by looking at many, many different minerals at the same time in what are called network analysis. You've probably heard of network analysis. It's used for social networks in analyzing how people interact. Well, minerals are very much the same. So imagine this. Each of these little dots or nodes is a different mineral species. Two minerals that are found together form a link, and then you make a network. So imagine here's a granite, a common rock type. You may have a granite kitchen countertop that's been polished, and you'll have several different minerals in that. They coexist. And so if you have a network, here's a network of all the minerals that are found in commonly in what are called igneous rocks, 37 different minerals. And the subset here, this is granite. There's another subset up here. That's a rock type called aluminum basalt. Here's a rock type called nepheline cyanide and so forth. All of the field of igneous petrology, which you can spend a year studying in college and spend your whole life delving into. It's all represented here by one diagram. So that's the power of network diagrams. There's so much information embedded here. We can do this in a more elaborate way. This is called a force-directed graph, where now we have 51 different minerals that are found in igneous rocks. Each circle represents a mineral. Each link is like a spring in this case. And the spring is very tight if the two minerals always occur together. There's either no spring or a very loose spring if the minerals rarely occur together. And you can actually look at this whole diagram and convey huge amounts of information. So for example, the node size here tells you whether it's a very common or a rare mineral. The spacing says how much they occur together. The colors give you something about the mineral group in this particular case. And you can actually play around with this and, and go online to our website, dtdi.carnegiescience, and you can download this. And you can see how each mineral is connected to everything else. This is 51 different minerals. That means it's 50-dimensional space we're exploring. 
which is really hard to imagine, but when you start playing around with it, you start seeing trends. So we can do this for different planets and moons. We can do the networks, and we, what we find is the planetary networks are different. Earth is distinct, and it may be a biosignature once again, just the network geometries. This is a network, a little more complicated, with 243 copper-bearing minerals, the most common minerals of copper, um, in this case, colored by composition. So these are minerals that are called sulfides in red. We have minerals that are oxides and carbonates and so forth, like malachite and azurite in blue. These are what are called sulfate minerals. You see they segregate. And again, this is the work of Shauna Morrison. You can um, look at a very common mineral like chalcopyrite that's connected to almost everything in the diagram, and, and the diagram is very much controlled by that. The same thing is true for the very common mineral malachite. That's that beautiful green, semi-precious stone you may have seen polished in various ways. One thing that surprised me was this green circle here is native copper. And I would have thought native copper would have been in the more red zone here, these sulfides, but it's smack in the middle of all the blue things and much more connected to those. So there are little things like that you can start learning. You can spend hours and hours and hours studying this. If you're a copper mineral specialist, that's something you might do. Here's Dan Hummer's work on manganese. I mentioned that before. In this case, this is a three-dimensional network in which the manganese minerals are colored. And what we, we learn new things. These are all the known manganese minerals and how they're connected to each other. Turns out there's this little clump way up here, mostly red. That means they're mostly divalent manganese phosphates that occur in pegmatites. Here's another clump over here, again, mostly red. These are high-pressure metamorphic manganese minerals. And then this thing here, which is technically called a hairball which is all the other stuff. And these are the near-surface manganese minerals that just kind of are, are a mess if you know anything about manganese, but, but some of us love them. And, and you can make this into a three-dimensional uh, map. You can rotate it. This is online again. You can go and see this, and you can, you can um, look at each individual node and see what minerals are in there. You can explore all the different interconnectedness. You can uh, zoom in and, and look at specific regions of this. The amount of information that's contained here is just unimaginable. This is hundreds of years of research on manganese minerals and how they co-occur, all presented in a single graph. But wait, there's more. We can do bipartite networks. Bipartite networks have two different kinds of nodes. Here's one that might be familiar to you in terms of the spread of disease a viral disease where these might be airports or hospitals, and these are people, men and women colored differently, and, and how they've traveled to different places, and the virus spreads, and it spreads, and you can imagine how that works. We can do the same thing with minerals, where we have the mineral species in colored circles, like very common calcite with a big circle, also colored red for the commonest minerals. A little less common is witherite, a smaller circle, a little more toward the orange or yellow part of the spectrum. And then the, the greens and the blues on the outside are the extremely rare minerals like uh, cozoite. So what you're seeing here is a group of minerals. The sizes, and in this case, the colors also tell you whether they're common or rare minerals. And then in black, this U-shaped thing, are all the localities where those minerals occur, the regions. Turns out that the two regions where they're the most number of carbon-based minerals are the Kola Peninsula in Russia, the La Poudrette Quarry in uh, Quebec. And something that's really amazing here, look at the symmetry that goes right down here. Now, no one's ever seen 
a network diagram, a bipartite network diagram with this symmetry. We've talked to lots of people in, who do the mathematics of networks, and they're utterly fascinated by this, because this seems to be something embedded in the natural world, something about the distribution and diversity of minerals, which forms this beautiful flowering of species, the, the really common ones in the middle, the rare ones on the outside, this U-shape. And we wondered, well, how about going into higher dimensions so we can now do this in three dimensions? There's a three-dimensional rendering of this, in which case the gray circles are the localities, and the colored circles here are colored by structure type, so it's a little bit different. And you can rotate this again, and you can zoom in, and you can see the properties. And it turns out that those gray localities now form a kind of vase-like structure, an inverted vase. And you can see that even better, because we can do this with virtual reality glasses. You put on the glasses, and you can actually walk into the network and manipulate it. And you see in red are the localities, and you see that vase-like structure, and in blue are all the minerals on the outside. So we're now actually using virtual reality to explore the diversity and distribution of minerals. Ah, oh, it's fun. It's really fun. Go to the website and try this, dtdi.carnegiescience.edu. But if you are like me, you may be asking yourself, wow, those are sort of cool. They're kind of pretty. Maybe they'd be fun to play with. Is there anything there? Is there anything scientific here? I mean, is this just a trick? And you have to ask that question. And, and for us, I think there are two answers that give us a very strong feeling that there is something real here. There's something that's very compelling. One is that these networks that turn out embed information that we don't include when we make the network. And I'll show you what I mean in a second. And the second is something called affinity analysis, where we can actually make predictions about what's missing. Let me show you what I mean. So here's that copper network diagram, copper mineral network diagram I showed you before. Remember, it's very strongly clustered by composition. There's sulfides, here's oxides, here's sulfates. Well, what it's telling us, the only information that went into this, making this diagram was which minerals coexist with which minerals. And then you set up a bunch of springs, and it comes to some kind of equilibrium arrangement. But there's a very, very strong compositional axis through this diagram, going from very high activity of oxygen down here the very low activity of oxygen. There's, these are things that are going to be reduced or not rusted, and these are things that are increasingly rusted as you go down here. We didn't include that compositional information when we made the diagram, but it's embedded in there anyway. Here's the sulfur axis, very low sulfur, very high sulfur. Again, we didn't include that information, but it's embedded in the diagram. Even more intriguing has to do with time. It turns out all of these diagrams have a time axis embedded in them, even though we didn't say anything about the age of the minerals when we made the network. To give you an understanding of this, let me talk about fossils for a change, because fossils, you can sort of see why there'd be a timeline running through a network. This is all the different kinds of trilobites, the genera of trilobites. I love trilobites, and when I look at this diagram, they're colored according to the eight different orders of trilobites that occur. Um, there's the olanellids, there's the uh, tychoperids, that's the saphids, phacopids, lycids, proetids. These are things, and when you look at these, if you've collected trilobites like I have one since I was in Ohio, I found my first trilobite in Cleveland, Ohio when I was nine, nine years old. So this is, this is really exciting. When you look at this, that's a timeline. 
from the very earliest to the very late stage. Indeed, we can animate this information in a way that's very, very powerful because it not only shows that evolution, but it shows the mass extinctions. So if you look, it's very hard to see up there, 525, 520, 515, that's how many million years ago. These are the different, for each one million year period, which trilobite genera coexist. And there was a mass extinction right there. And it sort of changes gradually for a while, it changes gradually. And we'll see a couple other big jumps. And we're now at about 420. We're getting close to another mass extinction. Wait for it. Wait for it. Sort of just sits there not doing much. And then bang, there it goes. Okay. So, so this, you can see this, this network dying was only built by knowing the coexisting genera. In this case, though, with the ages. Um, so how does that relate to minerals? Well, here's the same diagram you just saw, the bipartite diagram of carbon minerals with the localities in black, the minerals in colors, but now they're colored by the earliest known occurrence of that mineral. And you see how the hot colors are down here concentrated? As you go out, they get lighter and lighter and lighter color. There is a time axis embedded in here, even though there's no time information. Well, this suggests to us that as we start looking at these networks, and especially when we start looking at higher dimensions, not two dimensions or three, but you know, in 20 or 50 or 100 dimensions, we'll start being able to see trends within the data that give us additional keys about the evolution of minerals. All right, so that's one reason I think these networks really mean something. They embed information. A second reason is because they're very closely related to something called market basket analysis or affinity analysis which is a way of predicting that we never used before. Let me give you an example. I went on Amazon a couple months ago, and I wanted to buy a copy of Jonathan Lenin's book called Astrobiology. There was only one used copy, it was 300 bucks. I decided it wasn't worth paying 300 bucks for this, because I could get it at the library. But within one second, this is what I got. You recently viewed items that we inspired by your browsing history, and so they recommended a group of books. And I have no idea why they picked some of those. I mean, but, but they know, they have this incredible algorithm where they have hundreds of millions of buyers, they have billions of sales, they know what you like, they know what you don't like, and they can put all that information together and use this something called affinity analysis or market basket analysis to predict what's missing. So the same math applies to the minerals. We know which minerals like each other. We know which minerals don't like each other. We can look at a locality that has a certain number of minerals and say, well, what's the missing mineral at this locality? Or here's one of my favorite minerals. Where do I go on Earth to find it where it's never been found before? So if you can find groups of minerals at a locality, you are more or less likely to find other minerals. It's the same thing as buying books or any other product. And mineral networks reveal these associations. The first test of this was by Jolyon Ralph, the, the person who runs the MINDAT uh, organization. He said, I love the mineral wolfenite. It's a beautiful mineral. It's rare. Uh, I want to find a new version. He went to MINDAT. He looked at different localities. And here's Crook's Peak, Crook's Peak in New Mexico. There was a list of minerals, but it didn't include wolfenite. And he said, there's got to be wolfenite there based on my statistical analysis. So he sent collectors out there, and lo and behold, they found wolfenite. So this same technique could be applied to finding the next big copper mine, next cobalt mine, or, or maybe some rare minerals that, that we haven't ever found before, but we can say this is where you go to find that rare mineral. This is the technique, and so big data is going to allow us to do that. So my conclusions, I think, are 
what I stated at the beginning. You know, the analysis of visualization mineral data through deep time, through space, they reveal all sorts of new aspects of Earth that Earth's transformed repeatedly over four and a half billion years, that life and rocks have co-evolved, and we can predict for the very first time the existence of minerals and other natural objects. This approach is about to transform our understanding of Earth. As I said in the beginning, we live on a planet of change. And many of those changes that are occurring these days seem very rapid. They seem unsettling. We're not really sure what the future holds. But I think if we're going to understand that future and be able to predict it, one of the key things is to be able to understand the past as well. So with that, I thank you very much. I hope there might be um, a chance to answer some questions. Appreciate it very much. Thanks very much. We'll take uh, questions for Dr. Hazen. And uh, I usually like to start with uh, anybody who's not yet in college. Not yet in college. Great. Anybody? OK, sometimes we have some takers. All right, just hands up. Uh, let's start with David, and then I'll go around. Uh, could you explain the term large numbers of rare events? It sounds like an internal contradiction, so I couldn't yes. tell what <laughs> it means if there's 5,400 species, there may be 100 of those that account for 99.9% .9 of the volume of the crust. But there may be three or 4,000 that are incredibly rare, that only occur at one or two or three places. Many of those minerals are known only by a few samples that are microscopic, where the entire world's supply of a mineral species would fit into a thimble. And so you have a large number of those rare things, but a very small number of extremely common things. So that's a statistical distribution which seems to be very common to biological systems and also to mineral systems on Earth, but not to mineral systems on Mars. Uh, sir, back corner, just yell it out. Could past asteroidal impact events have bearing on the time and location of uh, minerals? So asteroid impacts could have a huge impact, <laughs> I guess that's a, <laughs> on, on mineral distribution. It's, it's absolutely true. Um, it would need to be a very large impact to cause a particular species to go completely extinct. We do think there have been perhaps mineral extinction events in the past, but most impacts, even ones uh, you know, the size of the Chicxulub, the dinosaur extinction event that they talk about, it really didn't affect the global mineral distribution. It didn't affect the global microbial distribution. It affect just you know, big animals like dinosaurs and it, it would affect us in a similar negative way. So, so it takes a very, very large impact, like a moon-forming event, to disrupt the entire planet. Oh, Ma'am, go ahead. Yeah, I would think that uh, mining companies would be really keen on this uh, predictive ability. Are they funding further research? Or Please repeat yeah, the so, question. Yes, yeah, so we're, we're uh, mining companies and their interest. We're meeting with a cobalt mining company next week. We had a, a workshop, a three-day workshop at the Colorado School of Mines. We had another workshop at the US Geological Survey to look at this. There's an ironic problem here. The only way this works is if the data resources are completely open. So if you want to find, you have a copper mining prospect. It's 10 kilometers by 10 kilometers. And you want to find where on that property should I drill to get the mine. Well, you have to have all the data on another 100 similar mining prospects, and then you'll have 
you'll be able to use machine learning techniques and so forth. The trouble is all the mining companies keep their data proprietary. They'll say, I'll let you see the data on our 10 kilometers square, <laughs> but you can't see anybody else's. And so the mining companies are just, uh, they can't use this. Uh, the, the one bright spot is, is Australia, because in Australia, all the mining companies, all the land is public, and every mining company has to make any measurement they make public. So it is possible that Australia, and there's a big data prospecting effort going on now in Australia, it, that may point the way for other companies. But right now, in the United States, it, everybody holds onto their data, and so data science doesn't work if you don't share data. Sir, go ahead. Please repeat the, the question. The, the, the question is, can you predict where petroleum and natural gas are without drilling? And, and we certainly think, once again, given large data resources, and the largest petroleum companies, the resource companies, have their own data, and they have their own data scientists. So we're quite sure that you know, Exxon and, and Shell and, and other companies are doing this, but they're not sharing that information. So, so um, it's, it's, it's tricky, you know? You, you try to, if you have enough prospects of your own, you may be able to use machine learning on the data you already have. But the big companies, as far as I know, are not sharing their data so that it's not something for us to be able to do. I think there was a question over here. Is that right? Go ahead, sir. Uh, what's the difference between a dry planet and a wet planet? Water is an incredibly important agent in mineral diversification. There are literally thousands of minerals that are either hydrated, that have hydrogen incorporated in some way, um, that are alteration products. Um, you may have noticed that I list, gave a list of sodium minerals, sodium carbonate minerals. Well, those sodium carbonate minerals, there are seven possibilities. Six of them have different amounts of water. And it's you know how wet or how dry it is. You can imagine you have a, a sodium-rich lake. It, it evaporates, and as it evaporates, you go through stages of dehydration. And so much of the mineral diversity that we're seeing in these near-surface rocks has to do with water. If you don't have any water, then all you have is the dry minerals, and that's a very limited list. Ma'am, go ahead. Well, that's fascinating. So geoengineering itself, there certainly are ways that human activities could affect the distribution. I mean, uh, some of them are as, as mundane as, as we have mineral collections. So we go to these places where they're incredibly exotic and rare minerals that are all concentrated in one place. We mine them all out, and then that locality no longer has the minerals, and they're distributed all over the Earth. So from a mineral collector point of view, that's, that's one example. But on a more global scale, um, I think the kinds of changes we do that could cause big changes in mineralogy have to do, for example, with, with, with changing the global CO2 concentration in the atmosphere, which can radically affect the distribution and the extent of carbonate minerals on Earth. What about chemtrails? Like, do you modify climate with... Um... Airplane, oh, contrails, yeah. Um, I, I'm not an expert on that. I, I don't... Certainly, atmospheric changes can have long-term changes on the kinds of minerals that are going to form stably. 
uh, in terms of the rel relative ratios, but to have entirely new minerals form over large areas, I think we're not making enough of a change to do that. That's, that's, a, that's a different long-term long problem. Uh, let's take one or two more last questions. Sir, go ahead. You said that the, for cobalting, uh, it's obvious to me how the light affects the minerals in certain examples. Do the minerals affect how life evolves also? Minerals can have a profound effect on life because minerals provide habitats, they provide ecosystems, they provide uh, nutrients. So, for example, we see in the history of life the very earliest microbes the proteins that they used for their metabolism were dominated by the element iron, because iron was abundantly available in the oceans. As the Earth's near-surface environment changed, it became much more possible to use manganese and then much more possible to use copper. And if you look at the evolution of proteins, we now have organisms that use manganese-based, for example, photosynthesis is manganese-based, and then copper-based metabolisms which are much more recent innovations, and that's because this coevolution, as life changes the atmospheric conditions, it changes the geochemistry, which changes the mineralogy, which changes the availability of the elements you might use when you're building your proteins. So that's the kind of feedbacks that we're seeing that I think are really fascinating. We're trying to study that feedback. Let's take one last question, sir. Wow, that's fascinating. So you'd have to have good, reliable data. What I've proposed is it's much more likely we could use it for Mars because we do have extremely good now reflectance spectra for the surface of Mars down to you know, pixel sizes roughly 10 square meters. So if you have something like that and you have an anomaly, you may be able to spot it. Um, they haven't really been doing that yet. We've been trying to work with them to say, let's see if we can look for anomalous pixels and see if we can interpret them that way. But, but to me, that is a, a very good prospecting tool, yeah. Okay, so we're about to thank Dr. Hazen again. But wait, you have a chance for the next hour to join us at the reception upstairs at the Traditions Room, have a cookie, have a coffee, and talk to Dr. Hazen. Thanks very much for coming. Thank you.